Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 1-1 and 31a. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College Park. You have to excuse me, I'm having a bit of a crisis now. Joe just informed me that I'm no longer young. <laughs> just, just give me a moment here to adjust. No, like Joe said, I have been here a little over a year now, and it has been a great year. Thank you for the privilege of getting to serve this body of believers. My wife and I have loved our time here at College Park so far, and God has done a lot in us, and we are grateful that we've gotten to, to be a part of this. So let me pray before we get into this morning's text. Father, we just spent a full morning singing about who you are. Lord, and I know that we barely made a dent in unpacking all your greatness. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. The Lord is God and he is a great king over all the earth. Or we look at the rest of the world and your word tells us that the gods of this world are, are worthless idols. But the Lord, he created the heavens and the earth. So this morning, Father, as we unpack your word, this word that is unbelievable that you would choose to speak to us, that this majestic, mighty, marvelous, magnificent God we've been singing about actually spoke to people like us. And Father, as we open that word and see how you created, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. I pray that our hearts would be enlarged to love you more and that we would be led to worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning I want to tell you about something that happened to me about a year and a half ago or so. See, about a year and a half ago, I had something revolutionary happen to me. This something actually changed my every waking moment in my day. In fact, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this event changed how I see everything in life. So what was it? I got a new pair of glasses. I know, I know. Now, you're wondering, why is that so revolutionary? Well, here's why. If you wear glasses or contacts, you know that in general, you're supposed to go to the eye doctor every year, maybe two, to have your prescription checked. And if you have a change, you should get new lenses. I knew that. Well, see, since I had been primarily wearing contacts for a while, I just never bothered to get my glasses updated. I figured, you know, yeah, I'm wearing them, but I can, I can see well enough, right? I can still drive, I think, and I haven't hit anything, so I, I can see okay. So I let a year go by, then I let two, then I let five, then <laughs> much to the chagrin of my wife, I let ten. Year 12, I decided this is the year for new glasses. So that was a year and a half ago, and here's why it was revolutionary. Because when I walked out of that eye doctor's office, I could not stop talking about how much clearer I could see everything. Now, it's not that I couldn't see before, right? It's that everything now had a new sharpness and a focus to it. 
Everything I looked at was more beautiful because I could see it even more clearly. Everything changed when I saw it through a new lens. So why am I telling you about my visionary revolution? Well, because I think the same thing can happen to us when we look at our Bibles. See, we can read the same passages over and over again, and we can see them. We can see truth, and we can see beauty there. But I would argue that there's a lens that helps us bring all of the Bible into sharper focus and helps us see more than we did before. That lens is a kingdom lens. See, the story of the Bible is the story of a king and his kingdom. And like every kingdom, this kingdom consists of both a place and a people. And so from the first page of the Bible to the last, what we see woven all throughout is this pattern. We see king, place, people. King, place, people. And when we understand that, it gives us a lens both for how to read the word and how to see the world. Wherever we open our Bibles, when we see what's there through this lens of a king and his kingdom, the story becomes clearer and more beautiful. So this morning, we're going to look at a story that many of us have seen before. We're going to look at the story of creation in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. But this time, we're going to look at it through our kingdom lens. My hope this morning is that as we do, we'll see more clearly how this story of creation connects to the rest of the story. Now, as we look through the passage, we're going to come across several different kingdom concepts, and we're going to look at six of them. These kingdom concepts are going to help us build a framework for how to see creation and the rest of the Bible more clearly. Now, there's way more here than we can cover this morning. That's my fair warning. But my goal is simply for us to look through this kingdom lens and see how it brings even more clarity and beauty to what we've already seen. So let's look at Genesis 1. Now, if we're going to talk about a king and a kingdom, the first thing we need is a king, right? So the first kingdom concept we see is the creator is king. The creator is king. And we meet our king in verse 1. There it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, from this verse and from the whole rest of the chapter, we're going to see two things that demonstrate to us God's kingship over his creation. We're going to see his power, and we're going to see his authority. First, we see the king's power on display simply in the fact that he created. Think about that. God made everything. I know we hear that enough, but don't run past that. Let your minds actually ponder that statement. The sun that's so powerful that it can burn our skin from millions of miles away. The seas that we sang about that roar and tumble. The heights of Mount Everest and the depths of the Grand Canyon. From the vastness of Andromeda Galaxy to the tininess of a newborn baby. All of those made by the king. The prophet Jeremiah said, O Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The creator is powerful, and this unmatched power 
is one way we see the Creator's kingship. Now notice also that we see His kingship in His authority over His creation. Look at verse 5. There it says, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. Verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. Now why is this important? This is important because naming implies authority. And we know that, right? Who gets to name your kids? You get to name your kids because you have authority over them. No one else can name your child because they don't have the authority as parents. Or recently, we saw this in the news, recently President Obama changed the name of Mount McKinley back to its former name of Denali. Now, many groups for years had been trying to get this change to take place, but they were unable. So why could President Obama? Well, it's simple. Only he had authority. Naming implies authority. And we see that God's naming of creation demonstrates this exact same authority. We see this authority over creation all throughout the rest of the Bible. And everywhere you see it, there's a very basic argument. And it goes like this. He made it, so it's his. Psalm 95 says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. Why? For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So what we see is that the creator is king because he created. Okay, but now why does this matter? Why does it really matter that the creator is king? There's a lot of reasons, but let me just give you two. The first reason it matters that the creator is king is this is what makes us accountable to him. See, if we had just popped into existence out of nothing and there was no creator, then we could rightfully do whatever we wanted and there'd be no one to tell us any different. But if we were in fact created by the king, then he has the authority to tell us how to live. See, friends, we are not our own. We belong to our maker. And we are his because he made us. Now this, so early in the Bible, this helps us understand why sin is such a big deal. It's us rebelling against the king who made us. Now if you're here and you're a parent, think about this a moment. I'm, I'm sure you've probably never experienced this, but some parents I've heard about have had their kids rebel against them, speak back to them, disobey them even. Now in that moment, surely you've never felt this feeling of, are you kidding me? You're going to say that to me? Do you know that you exist because of me? I made you, right? We get, there's a, there's a sense of indignation, like, are you serious? That's exactly what we do in sin. We look at our maker and say, no, the audacity of our sin should stagger us, that we would dare to rebel against our king. But we see a second thing here too. Not only does the fact that the creator is our king form the basis of our accountability to him, thankfully it also provides the basis of our comfort. See, as Christians, we love and celebrate the fact, rightly, that God works all things together for our good. But have you ever stopped to think that the only reason we can trust that God's actually able to work all things for our good 
is because he made all things. The king has authority over all things because he created all things. That's why we worship him as king. Or earlier, we sang a song where we said, all glory, honor, power is yours. And that is true and that is right that we sing that. But the Bible actually goes further. It not only tells us we should sing that, it tells us why. Because those lyrics were straight out of Revelation 4. And listen to why we sing that song. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we worship God by singing songs like that, and we worship God as king because he's a creator. Okay, so that's our first point, that the king is creator. And now we've seen that our king is creator, and our second concept Let's look at how this king created. And what we're going to see here is that the king creates through his word. Look at verse 2. There it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But then comes verse 3. And God said, This king, who had always existed, See, he was already there in the beginning. This king spoke into nothingness and said, let there be light. And then the craziest part about it is, and there was light. And then he did it again and again and again. Eight times in Genesis 1, the king speaks and says, let there be And eight times it's followed by, and it was so. When the king speaks, his word actually creates what it commands. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. It tells us that the earth should fear him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Our king's word creates what it commands. But what what I find most amazing about this is that this isn't just how galaxies and mountains and animals and people were created. Friends, this is how Christians are created. In the New Testament, what we see is that when the Spirit of God hovers over the deep darkness of an unbelieving heart, the king then speaks through his gospel word and says, let there be light. And suddenly there's light and you can see. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What he's telling us is that God creates Christians the same way he created the world through his word. Paul goes on to say in that same passage that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. So understanding how the king creates the world in Genesis 1 helps us understand how the king creates Christians today. And what we see is that this king creates through his word. Okay, so now we've seen that 
the king is our creator. We've seen how our king creates. But now in our third kingdom concept, let's look at what it is this king actually creates. Remember at the beginning, we said our pattern is what? It's king, place, people. So what we find in Genesis 1, verses 3 to 25, is the king creating his kingdom place. And this place we're going to see is a world of wonder. So there's a lot to see here, but what are some things we can learn about this world? Well, the first thing that we see is that this world has order. It has a structure to it. Verse 2 that we looked at, that describes a place of disorder. Most commentators agree that when it's mentioning waters there, it's talking about waters of chaos. So what does the king do? The king brings order out of chaos. He forms the formless and he fills the void. Look at the, look at the days there. It says the earth was without form. So first he starts to give it form. Days one through three, the king creates three different spheres. He creates night and day, and he creates the skies and the seas, and then he creates the ground. So now we've got form. Then on days four to six, the king takes those forms, those void and empty forms, and he fills them. He creates the sun, moon, and stars to fill the day and the night. Then he creates birds and swimming creatures to fill the sky and the seas. And then finally, he creates animals and man to fill the earth. What was without form and void is now ordered and full of life. But the king also fills this world of wonder with beauty and diversity. He actually made it to be enjoyed. In Genesis 2.9, it says, the king made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, I love that. Have you ever just paused to think, God didn't need to make the world beautiful. He could have just made it functional. It just would get the job done. But he didn't. Instead, he made things that were nice to look at. He created beauty for us to behold. And not only that, it says that he made things that were good for food. God made creation to taste good. Why do you think God made us with such complex taste buds? There's so many varieties and nuances of flavor. He did that because he wants us to enjoy what he has made. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're a foodie, if you are constantly reading restaurant reviews, trying to find the hot new place, try that new chef or that new dish, man, you should circle this verse in your Bible. This is like your life verse okay? The king made good food to be enjoyed. But now as we look at the way the king made this world, there are huge implications for us. The first one is because the king made the world ordered and structured, like we said, that means that we can actually study it through science. See, if he had left it chaotic and random and there's no explanation, there'd be no place for science in our world. But instead, God had made it ordered and structured with observable patterns and repeatable processes. God wants us to study and understand the world he's made. And look at what God himself did in creation. Multiple times, it tells us he separated one thing from another. So he's organizing. It says he separated light from darkness and waters above from waters below. But then after he separated, then he goes on and he sorts it. It tells us how the plants and animals were each made according to their kind. 
There were different kinds because of a diversity. So God's creating, and he says, I'm going to make a horse kind. And then he says, I'm going to make a dog kind. Now, he didn't make a cat kind, because it may not be in your footnotes, but cats actually came in after sin entered the world. <laughs> so, but that's, that's another sermon. Please don't come up to me afterwards and tell me that's not true. I, I know. Okay, but the king made a beautiful world full of diversity. Second, because the king created this world with beauty, that means that you and I can create and enjoy beauty. In fact, one implication of our text is the art show that's still on display out there and that we had last weekend. That means we can and we should have art shows because the king created beauty. So art, music, literature, all of that is to be enjoyed because all created beauty reflects the king's beauty. And then finally, notice what the king thinks of each aspect of his creation. Six times, the king steps back after he made something, and he looks it over, and he says, that's good. That is good. The king enjoys his creation, and the world he made was a good world. So we, too, can and should enjoy the king's creation because he does. Now, before we move on, sadly, you're probably feeling a tension, and that's because we know something went wrong, right? We rebelled against our king, and because of that, we were kicked out of this paradise that he created. And ever since then, the king's people have always been looking for the king's place. Now, Israel thought they had it when they got the promised land, but that was only a shadow of the world we lost. It didn't last. So today, the king's people find ourselves still longing for the world of wonder that we were created to inhabit. But the good news is, we're not without hope. Because when our king left, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. That place is the kingdom we were made to live in and enjoy. This world of wonders created by our king. Okay, so now we've seen two of the three pieces of our kingdom framework. We've seen our king, and we've seen his kingdom place. Now in the next concept, let's look at what the king creates, and that is he creates a kingdom people. Look with me at Genesis 1.27. There it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see here is that when the king created people, he created them to be ruling reflectors. Ruling reflectors. What do I mean by that phrase? Well, first, the king made people to be reflectors. All people were made in his image and likeness to reflect him. And when we stop and think about it, friends, this is an unbelievable privilege that we just take for granted. No other part of creation has this honor. Nothing else did God say, this is going to be in my image. Only people 
In fact, this is what moves David in Psalm 8 when he says, Lord God, when I survey the heavens and see the work of your hands, and I, I, I see the stars, and I see all these things that you made, what is man that you are mindful of him? Friends, we have an unbelievable privilege in that we get to image the king. We were made to reflect him. And this concept is so important because this concept is the very foundation of human dignity. The reason all human beings have value, and in fact, the only reason that something like human rights even exist, is right here in Genesis 1. Because all human life is created in the image of God. And this is why abortion and assisted suicide and racism and neglect of the poor are all so evil. Because when you sin against an image bearer, you sin against the king whose image they bear. And this is why the king's people value all human life, whether born or unborn, whatever the age, whatever the race, and whatever the ability or disability. All people are created to be reflectors of the king. And not just reflectors, we see, but ruling reflectors. See, the king actually gives us dominion over the earth and its creatures. And this particular aspect of creation, this is what gives each of our lives purpose. See, we just saw that our lives have value because we reflect the king, but our lives have purpose and meaning because the king made us with something to do. That something is we were created to rule the earth under the authority of the great king. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we are to rule the earth? Does that mean that we can just do whatever we want to the world because, hey, we have dominion over it? No, of course not. We are to rule the world the way the king rules the world. We are to bring order out of chaos. We are to cultivate beauty. We are to do things that promote the goodness of creation. Let me give you a very practical example of this. A couple years ago, my wife and I, we don't remember if we heard it in a talk or read it on a blog, but we, we came across an, a, a quote or a concept that just really stuck with us and has shaped how we see a lot of things at home. So now, my wife, if you were to come over while she's cleaning our house, let's say she's mopping the floors or she's doing the dishes, and you were to ask her, Emily, what are you doing? You know what she'd say? She'd say, I'm pushing back the darkness. Did you catch that? I'm pushing back the darkness. See, she gets it. She sees how her everyday tasks of bringing order out of chaos and cultivating beauty in our home, our little domain, is part of her ruling the world. So friends, this week... I'm asking, remember that when you're mowing the lawn or if you're making the laws, if you're making some great scientific discovery, or maybe you're just making dinner, you are exercising dominion over the world. Now, as great as that is, once again, there's probably a tension because we know, wait, something's not right though. Once again, we see that we all fail to reflect our king well. And we've failed to rule the world that he's given us in a way that honors him. But once again, the gospel connects to this creation issue. 
See, where you and I have failed in our role as image bearers, that's where Jesus, the image of the invisible God, has succeeded in our place. So now, for those of us who are in Jesus by faith, that's why it tells us that we are being conformed to his what? To his image. We are being renewed in the image of our creator and our redeemer. What's happening is we are being restored as ruling reflectors of our king. Now, as if that wasn't enough, now that we've seen what our king creates and how he creates it, for the last two kingdom concepts, I just want us to step back a second and look at the king himself to see a little bit more about what is our king like. So our fifth kingdom concept is this, the king provides. Look at Genesis 1.29. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, I love that word at the beginning, behold. This is the speaker's way of trying to get your attention. It's like, the, it's like God saying, listen, what I'm about to say, you need to hear and understand. And what he says is, I've given you everything you need. Our king goes out of his way here in the very first chapter of the Bible to make sure we know this about him. Our king provides. And notice that his provision is both general for all of creation and it's specifically focused on his people. Psalm 104 paints a beautiful picture of the first kind of provision of God providing for all his creatures. It says, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Then as it talks about the rest of his creatures, it says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. What the Bible makes abundantly clear is that all of creation is dependent on the king. He feeds every animal and he waters every plant. The king provides for his creation. But he especially provides for his people. This is such a good truth. Matthew 5 tells us that our father, the king, knows what we need even before we ask him. He knows And he knows better than we do. So if you're here this morning, my guess is most of us have at least one burning need where we're just thinking, God, you've got to do something. I need you to reconcile this relationship. It is broken beyond repair. God, I need you to help me kill this sin before it kills me. God, I don't know how we're going to make the bills meet this month. Whatever your need is, Friend, I want you to be encouraged by this, that your king knows. And not only does your king know what you need, he loves to provide. Luke 12 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The king loves to provide for his people. And here, too, this is just yet another gospel picture we see, right? Because the most extravagant way that the king has provided for us is by providing his son, who knew no sin, to be sin 
on our behalf so that in him we might actually become the righteousness of God. The king loved us by giving his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So now, because he did that, we can say with Paul in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything we need is provided by our king. And brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, that's your king. And what we see here, way back in the beginning, is that our king provides. And then that brings us to our sixth and our final kingdom concept. And that is that the king finishes what he starts. Look at Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I really love this because I got to be honest and say, I'm not like this. I am more of a starter. I love the idea of a new thing. I love a new task. I love a new project. I love starting a new book. My wife will tell you I usually have about 15 books going because what happens is I start them and then I get bored or I want to move on to the next one. I don't know if anybody else is like that, but that's, I'm a starter. Thankfully, God is not like this. Here it says, our king finishes what he starts. After six days, the king stopped working. But he did not stop because he was tired. He stopped because he was done. Creation was finished. It was complete. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like a big deal to you. Okay, so the king finishes what he starts. But one more time, let's connect a few gospel dots here. See, there are two other times in the Bible where the king signals to us that he has finished what he started. And I'm going to mention one now and then one more in a minute when I close. The next time the king tells us that he finished what he started is on a cross. In John 19, hanging under a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. King Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. His work was done. Redemption had been accomplished. Friends, this is really good news that the king finishes what he started. Because the king finished our redemption, there is nothing left for us to do. There is no more work. There's no more earning. You can't do enough. It is finished. All that's left for us to do is believe and trust the king's finished work on our behalf. So if you're here this morning and you've ever had that thought of, I just don't know if I, I can't do enough, I can't live that way, I'm not good enough, I've done too much. Friend, whatever your sin, whatever you've done, the work of your redemption is finished in Jesus. And the fact that this king finishes what he starts should give us great hope if we're in him. Because if we're in Christ, 
but you're here this morning and you're struggling. You are discouraged. You're not sure how you're going to make it. You are hanging on by your fingertips. Take heart because the king who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Your king will finish what he started. And that is good news for people like us. So now as we wrap up, let me just try to tie all of this together. I know we just covered a lot, but I also know we just barely scratched the surface of what's there. And my hope is that as we looked at creation through our kingdom lens, my hope is that some things became just a bit clearer. Maybe some things became just a little bit more beautiful. And I hope all of us can walk away having just a little better idea of how creation connects to the gospel. So let me leave you with a picture of why this creation story matters. See, the same kingdom pattern that we see at the beginning, we find at the end. At the end of the story, here's what we find. We find a king. We find that this king has all authority because he is both creator and redeemer. And this king is ruling over a new creation, a new kingdom place that is more beautiful than we can imagine. This is a world of wonder. It's a world so amazing, in fact, that the greatest earthly glories merely whet our appetites for the wonder that awaits. And in this kingdom place, we find a kingdom people. These people are redeemed, ruling reflectors, perfectly reflecting the king in their glorified bodies. These people are ruling over the new creation with the king, and they are perfectly provided for by their king. And when all this comes to pass, this is when the king will finally finish what he started. So let me close by reading Revelation 21, and I want you to listen for those elements. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that is the king, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let me pray. Father, we praise you as our king. We praise you that you are a finisher. That today, if we're feeling like our sanctification is so slow and there's so far to go, that we can rest in the fact that our king finishes what he starts.
when we look at a world that's so broken and so different than the world we've heard described in Genesis 1, we know that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And we know that one day you will finish what you started. And we will be in this place as your people, living and enjoying our King. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the Word and to see the world rightly that we would be able to look at this creation that you have made and that we would enjoy it and delight in it and that in every detail of it, we would be pointed back to the one who created it. So thank you for creating. Thank you for giving us this place of honor as your image bearers. Now help us to live out that role well today and this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.